The Word of God from Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by the number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after the coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel with his sons and the, son, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with all the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish between the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The word of God from 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world 
even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We do pray, Lord, that through your spirit, you would give us a responsiveness to your invitation. Or may we be like those first disciples as you invite us to follow you. May we with, with joy and anticipation follow you. And again, Lord, we acknowledge today we need your help. So help us, Lord, teach us, grow us, we ask. We ask all this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Can be seated. Yesterday in the ordination service, I mentioned that one of Joel's favorite uh, phrases I hear him say a lot is, it's so great. Um, and so can we just say, it's so great, Joel, to have you serving as a deacon today. I'm not quite sure why Pete called it a circus, but that's okay. So. <laughs> Let's, let's remember Pete's mistakes, shall we, together? <laughs> All right, that's what you get when you're ordained. Um, so be ready, Joel, so not that you... Um, so um, uh, many years ago, I uh, uh, was able to do a pastoral internship as part of my finishing up my um, seminary uh, studies. I, I had the joy of doing an internship, actually, at the church I'd grown up in in Indianapolis. Um, the church had changed a lot since I'd grown up there. Um, uh, but again, it was a very much a privilege to serve there. And I think it was just the second week of my time of this internship where the um, senior pastor called me into his office and he said, hey, one of our members is in the hospital. Here's her name. Uh, here's the hospital she's in and um, go visit her. And they kind of turned around sort of like we were done. And so what I should have done is I should have said, hey, can you um, teach me about doing a hospital visit? Because I've never done one before. If it was something that was talked about in seminary, I certainly didn't remember it. Um, I had never been in the hospital and been visited by a pastor. I, I really had no idea what do you do? What does a pastor do when he visits someone in the hospital? Um, but again, I was embarrassed to ask this pastor, so I just left and just thought, I'll figure it out. Um, and so I, I did go to the hospital, I visited this person, I think it went fine. I do remember that they were kind of thrown off when I walked in, you know, I think they were thinking, who's this nervous kid walking into my hospital room? Um, but they were very kind. And after that, I think I did a few other hospital visits during my internship, although I think Pastor uh, Peter um, kind of figured out, maybe he's not the guy to ask to do hospital 
little business. That may not be a strength of his. So a number of years later, Church of the Cross was getting started, and, and um, uh, the Lord, amid um, his grace and mercy, brought uh, a couple, uh, Graham and Jill uh, Fenton, um, to uh, be a part of our church. And Graham had recently retired um, as a uh, priest and pastor. And I asked him, I said, Graham, would you just come and sit down with me and a couple other folks here at Church of the Cross and just teach us about being a pastor. Um, he had pastored for a long time, very wise. He passed away last year, sadly, but I'm overjoyed that he is with the Lord. And so he came and sat down with us and for a couple hours just talked about things he had learned um, as a pastor. And one of the things, even though I hadn't asked him, was, that he talked about was, here's how I do hospital visits. And it was, it was so great um, to, to hear from him. He laid out sort of like, you know, you got to kind of figure out, do they want a long visit? Do they want a shorter visit? So here's some good Psalms to read. Here's some passages. Here's a, you know, appropriate way to ask how they're doing. It was just, it was wonderful. And I remember thinking, wow, I, I learned more in this couple hours with Pastor Graham, Father Graham, than I learned in many of my seminary classes. Now, maybe you've had that experience of you're given a directive, you're given a command of some sort, but you're left with this feeling of, how do I do it, right? Okay, I'm, I'm being told what I'm supposed to do, but I need some sort of practical here, you know, kind of hands-on examples of what does this look like? How do I act this out? And again, if that's in your job, sometimes maybe that's, I don't even know if I'm fulfilling what I've been told to do, right? <laughs> Am I doing it well? Am I not doing it well? Jesus, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Right, he said, quoting Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your might, with all your soul, with all your strength. And of course, he said, and the second is like it, right? You love your neighbor as yourself. When we hear that command, right, in the book of Deuteronomy, when we hear Jesus saying, this is the greatest command, right, we should say, what does that look like? Right, okay, right, love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, strength, but give me the practicalities, right? What does that look like day in and day out? Now, thankfully, of course, Jesus did love the Lord his God, right? The Lord God, the Father, with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so we can look at Jesus, right, and the Gospels and how he teaches and how, again, his spirit leads the church. And we can say, oh, this is showing me, right? I can learn. I see it perfectly in Jesus. But throughout the scriptures, right, we have examples. We have pictures of people loving the Lord their God. You know, sometimes, right, we have many examples where the people of God fail to honor God. Do not worship him as they're called to do. But I think we have many positive examples and powerful examples. And I want to suggest that in chapter 3 of Ezra, we're in the book of Ezra. I'm in this season of Epiphany and in through Lent. We'll do Ezra and Nehemiah. Two books that very much go together. In the third chapter of Ezra, I believe we see here a people coming together, seeking to love the Lord their God with their heart, with their mind, with their souls, with their strength. And we can take heart in this, right? We can learn from this. What are some of the marks of worship? What are some of the marks of loving the Lord our God? First thing we can see, right, is our love for God is responsive. And maybe that's obvious, but it's worth saying, right? Our love grows out of his love, right? We love him because he first loved us. We respond to his saving work on our behalf with love, with worship. And we see that so clearly here, right, in this example, right, because we know, right, the people are in captivity. If you were here last week or you're familiar with the book of Ezra, right, it begins chapter one with the spirit of God stirring up King Cyrus, right? And Cyrus announces, you can return home. We are, we're sending you back to your homeland, the Israelites, the people of God, right, that have been taken into exile. You can go home. And a matter of fact, I'm sending you home with resources and with money so you can rebuild the temple. 
Again, a wonderful moment um, from Cyrus, but as I said last week, it was from God. God stirred up Cyrus, right? This is God's work. As so God has returned the captives, as he promised he would do, they're settling back in, into the, the promised land, into the nation of Israel. So as they were in the towns, right, they gathered together in Jerusalem. Right? And so, of course, they're giving thanks to the Lord, right? He has shown his faithfulness. He has once again kept his promises to them, and they respond with worship, right? It's a responsive love, a responsive worship. We see that, right, in the, the song that they sing together there um, down the page in verse 11, right? This uh, verse, right, is, is repeated in a few different psalms and a few different places in Scripture. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. He has shown his love towards us, right? We have experienced his love, and we respond in love. Now, maybe we can say, well, isn't that kind of an immature love, right? A responsive love, right? We love him because he first loves us, right? Speaks a little bit maybe to, you know, shouldn't we initiate love, right? Shouldn't we love first? Jesus told us, right? Love your enemies. That's certainly an initiating love. But the clear, right, truth is, right, until we can receive love, until we've known love from the Lord, right, it's very hard to initiate love. We initiate, actually, we love our neighbor as ourselves. We love our enemies because of the love we have received, right? Just like the love of a parent, right? I, I, I wouldn't expect to hear a parent say, a parent certainly shouldn't say, I'll love my child when they've shown love to me, right? I'm waiting for them to see if they're going to love me, and then I'll love them, right? A parent wouldn't do that, right? A parent shouldn't do that. A parent loves their child. The child learns love. The child receives love. And as the child receives love, is strengthened to give love, right? Children who receive lots of love are much more equipped to live out love. And this is what we have in the Lord, right? And so in many ways, our love, right, um, of God, our response to this commandment, our obedience to that commandment, it's just natural, right? If we are receiving the Lord's love, if we're, you know, aware of what the Lord is doing and what he has done, worship should just flow, right? Love should just flow. But it doesn't always, right? I mean, it should, but that doesn't always happen. So the second thing we can note here is, right, our love is responsive, but our love is also obedient. We are commanded, right? That is the commandment, love the Lord your God. And so we are called to obey. It's actually very striking, this passage, what an emphasis we see on they were obeying, right? The, the writer here, right, Ezra, really wants us to know, look at the obedience, right? And so um, we have uh, in verse 2, near the end of verse 2, right, it says, they offered burnt offerings as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, right? This is probably specifically referring to Deuteronomy, um, once again, right, where directions are given. This is what the altar should look like. It should be uncut stones, right? We can imagine them, right, gathering uncut stones, saying, make sure they're uncut because we're going to obey exactly what the Lord commanded his people to do, right? And then it tells us that they kept the Feast of Booths, right? That is a feast where they celebrate, right? They build booths and they celebrate God's provision for his people when they were wandering in the desert, before, you know, when they came out of Egypt, before they had settled in the promised land. So it's a time to remember, right? God's provision, right? God's faithfulness to his people. Even in their disobedience, he was faithful. But notice what it says. And they kept the Feast of Booths as it is written. <laughs> they were obeying what was written. They offered the daily burnt offerings by number, according to the rule, as each day required. Right? It talks about regular burnt offerings. It talks about appointed feasts. Or even um, uh, some of the directions uh, or some of the ways in which um, it's described, their building of the temple. It's actually very similar language that we see um, in the description of uh, the building of Solomon's temple. So there's a sense in which we're going to do it right. right? We're going to do it the way they initially did. We're going to use the same materials they initially did. 
when we get down to the, the celebration and the praise, verse 10, it says to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Right? How did David praise the Lord? That's the way we're going to do it. Now, there's a very interesting verse. Maybe you, you caught it, verse 3, where it says, They sought the altar in place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. So what's going on there, right? Why is it talking about the fear that was on them because of the peoples of the land? Right? Well, what seems likely, it doesn't give us any explanation, but what seems likely was they were remembering, right, our forefathers, they worshipped idols, right? Sadly, many of them turned away from the Lord and went after false gods. And what happened? They were overtaken by their enemies, right? Sadly, right? They were eventually brought into exile. So it seems like what's happening here is that fear of the people surrounding them and knowing they could come in and, and cause trouble for us, and there is going to be some troubles that are to come, that they're sort of you know, working against that fear by building the altar and worshiping the Lord. Now, again, we may say, well, yeah, but I mean, you know, worship and love, right? That shouldn't be you know, a, you know, a thing that comes out of obedience, right? It shouldn't come out of a fear. And we would say, well, absolutely, right? It's responsive, right? God first acts in love and grace and salvation towards us. But we also obey. And we soberly remember, right? That God commanded us to love him because when we don't love him, when we go after idols, when we go after false gods, right, we're imprisoned. Right? We suffer. Right? God offers us and commands us to take the way of life because he knows the other way, right? The way against him is the way of death. So his commandment, right, to love him with all of our hearts, minds, and souls, right, is for his glory, for his honor, but it's for our good, right? What God commands, he commands because he loves us. But sometimes we're not going to feel it, right? Sometimes we're not going to feel like worshiping. That's where it's helpful to remember we, we do it out of obedience, right? We should just naturally want to worship, right? But it's, it's a command, Right? And I believe, I would suggest this is true in many of our relationships, right? In a marriage relationship, right? Hopefully the love, right, between husband and wife is natural and flows out of a thanksgiving and a joy in one another. But the fact of the matter is, right, the scriptures command, husbands, love your wives, right? And so as a husband, I have to say, I want to feel love. I hope I feel love. But whether I feel it or not, I'm commanded to love my wife. And I'm, I'm commanded, right? As a father, right? I'm commanded to care for and to love my children. It's easy, right? Um, but it's a commandment, right? At times, maybe you felt that in a friendship, right? In various relationships, right? Maybe I'm not feeling the love here, but I still have to obey. And there is actually a joy in that, right? We, we capture this in our, our liturgy. Have you, um, and you'll hear it uh, in just a few minutes, right? When we begin the communion liturgy, right? There's the, the back and forth. Right? And that celebrant says, let us worship the Lord our God. Right? There's an invitation there. You know, there's a little bit of sort of like, hey, I think this is a good idea. What do you think? Right? And what does the congregation say? They say, it is right. right? We are obeyed. Right? It's a good thing to worship the Lord our God. And the celebrant responds, it is right. And it is a, our duty and our joy. Do you hear that? I love that phrase, our duty and our joy. Right? We're commanded. Right? We're obeying a commandment. And it's our joy to obey this commandment. Right? I mean, it's, it's a joyful duty. That's the way the Lord's commandments work. As we obey them, actually, we recognize joy. We experience joy. And so again, there's a responsiveness, and there's an obedience, right, together, right? And again, we can get caught up in legalism. I, 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 I'm aware of that, right? We can get caught up in, you know, I must do this, right? But legalism is not obeying the commands because we know there's joy and freedom in that, right? Legalism is thinking if we obey, God will love us more. 
And so as long as we start, right, very clearly, God's already poured out his love for us. There's nothing we can do that can make the Lord love us more than following from that as a joyful, um, uh, 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 happy obedience. So responsive love, obedient love, but we also see communal love. A mark, right, a, a way we obey the commandment to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, minds, souls, strength, is we do so as a community. And we again, once again, we see how, how emphasized that is. When the seventh month came, back to verse one, the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. What does that remind you of? One man, right? Very similar to one body, right? First Corinthians, right? That's, you know, New Testament language, right? Um, of one body is very similar. Of course it's similar, right? This is the word of God, right? And so they're gathering really as a body, as a family, right? Another picture we get in the New Testament of the church, we see them acting as a family here. There's a lot of family language, right? A lot about brothers and kinsmen, right? And sisters um, working uh, together. Um, as a family, they're gathering. And just as we see, right, that vision of the body of Christ, uh, one body with many members, there are many responsibilities, there are many things to do. We see that here, right? There's, uh, they gather as one man, one body, one family with different people with different responsibilities, right? So we get the different names, right? As I mentioned last week, these names are important, right? The scriptures want us to know, here's who is doing what. Here's the different responsibilities people had. Here's who God was using and working through, right? And some had the responsibility of, you know, singing on the worship team, and some had the responsibility of building the altar, and some had the responsibility of gathering together the offerings, and others were leading in different ways, right? They're priests, they're Levites, and together they're praising the Lord. God loves community. Right? Yesterday at um, Joel's ordination service. Again, if you were there, there was a dinner afterwards with a strong baseball theme, right? Why was there a baseball theme, right? Because Joel loves baseball, right? And so, right, members of our church said we want to celebrate what Joel loves as we're celebrating his ordination. We're in the same way, when we hear that commandment, love the Lord your God, we can ask the question, what does God love? Right? A way I can show love to the Lord is to honor what he loves, and God loves family. He loves community. Right at the very beginning, he creates Adam and Eve. And what does he say to them? Right, be fruitful and multiply. Have a family, right? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with children. Right? And, and we go forward, right? He calls Abraham to himself, right? And he tells Abraham, I'm going to give you a child, even though Abraham and Sarah were way beyond childbearing years. God says, I'm going to raise up a nation from you. I'm going to raise up a people more numerous than the stars in the sky. And this nation will be a kingdom of priests. They will be a family that will represent me to the world. And we go forward, right, to the descendant of Abraham, right, the son of God, Jesus. And as he begins his ministry, what's one of the first things he does? He calls 12 disciples. He creates a community, right? He doesn't just do it by himself, right? He creates a community, and along with the 12 disciples, there are many other who follow him around, right? I mean, there's, we see the church right there. Even before the book of Acts, we see the church in the Gospels, right? We saw it in our Gospel reading today. Jesus is calling people to follow him. And he tells the disciples before he ascends into heaven, go out and make disciples. Very similar to be fruitful and multiply, right? Start a family, right? The family of God. And it's when, right, that small family of God at that point is worshiping together and praising the Lord that the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, right, as they gather in community, right, I think the Lord is saying, this is good, right, I love it when you gather together, I'm pouring out my spirit upon you so that you can be empowered to preach, right, and to gather more people. And we had all those baptisms, right, on that first Pentecost Sunday. If we go all the way then to Revelation, 
And we see the vision, right, for the new creation, right? It's a picture of a wedding feast, a wedding feast where we, the people of God, the family of God, are the bride. So again, I hope I've made the case, right? God loves family, right? He loves community. And so when we gather in community, when we gather as the family of God, it's a way that we're showing the Lord, we love you, right? We know you love this, right? My kids know. I love it when they're all together, right? I'm glad they're independent. I'm glad they're growing in different ways, but I love it when they all come together. In the same way, right, we're saying to the Lord, we know you love this, and we are coming together in obedience, right, to offer our sacrifice, also in our liturgy, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to you, right? And so my encouragement for you as you, you know, come to church, you know, maybe especially on a very cold morning or wherever the ways that you are living out that community aspect of our faith, whether it's a small group or a Bible study or getting together to pray with some friends or maybe meeting a friend for coffee who needs some encouragement, that as you do that, right, you would be considering, you know, what's in it for me, right? In a good way, right? What blessings do you have for me, Lord? Right? As I come together, right? And we'll, we'll sing a, a great song, right? We're going to sing a great song in communion. It talks about there's power when we gather together. So there's blessing. And I think it's appropriate, right, for us to say, Lord, I, I pray that there's blessings for me as I gather together with your people. But we can also be thinking about, oh, Lord, what do you have me as a member of the body? How am I called to serve? How is my presence actually there going to build others up, right? What ways, right? You know, maybe very visible, ways maybe less seen. I mean, are you calling me to bless others? But then the third thing we can consider is, Lord, may you see in this my love for you. As I gather together with people, maybe when I'm not feeling like it, again, maybe when it takes some extra effort, maybe when it's very much a sacrifice, or this is a way I can show love to you. This is a way that I honor you. And we see the people doing that. They're gathering together in Jerusalem to honor the Lord. The final thing I want to highlight here is we see that this responsive love is responsive in the moment, right? It's responsive to what God is doing right then. And so there's a responsiveness that we look back and remember the Lord's faithfulness and we respond to his faith right in the past and the ways he's shown his faithfulness. But there's also a responsiveness in the present, in the moment right now. So we have at the ending of this passage, uh, such a, a great and interesting moment, isn't it? That again, the, the foundation of the house of the Lord is laid, right? And they're celebrating, they're um, worshiping the Lord. But then it tells us many of the priests and Levites and heads of, father houses, of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house. So there were some there who remembered Solomon's temple, right? Before it was destroyed. And they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. What a powerful image, right? People shouting for joy, people weeping and telling us you couldn't even keep track, right? Who's shouting for joy? Who's weeping, right? There's so much noise. There's so much emotion. Now, why were they weeping? Well, again, we're told, right? They had seen the first house. Maybe there's an element of repentance in this. Maybe there's an element of sadness in this, right? Where they're remembering, right? That the sins of our forefathers um, uh, led to the exile. So maybe there's, a, you know, we, we bewail um, our manifold sins, right? They use, a, again, a liturgical phrase. But what seems more likely, or at least alongside of that, perhaps sorrow of repentance, is a missing of the good old days, right? Of thinking, man, man, with that, you know, that first temple, I mean, there was a point when Israel, I mean, everyone was looking at us. When Solomon was sort of like the greatest, right, uh, you know, in the whole in the world, you know, a sort of known world at that time. Maybe they're thinking, man, there was a time when we were independent, right? We had freedom, and now we're under, you know, Persia. So there's probably a weeping of thinking, man, if only we could go back. If only we could return to that time. 
Now again, we don't know all what was going on there. Someone after the first service said, well, maybe after they cried for a while, they joined in the worship, which I certainly hope was the case. But I think there's a warning here, right? Whatever was happening for them. I know what sometimes can happen for us is in looking back, which we rightly should do, right? We should always remember, right? It's a problem when the people of God forget. But looking back, sometimes we want to go back. Right? Sometimes actually we want to move backwards. And so remembering actually um, is taken over by nostalgia. Again, not that I'm anti-nostalgia, right? But there's a way in which we can get stuck. Now, it's right to grieve loss, right? I mean, that's appropriate that we would grieve loss. It's a problem when we don't grieve, right? We can remember, right, Isaiah 53, a prophecy of Jesus that describes Jesus as being a man familiar with sorrow. So I'm not saying don't cry, you know, don't, don't be sad for past loss. But again, to beware of that desire, that pulse sometimes to want to go back. Because the Lord, right, is working right now. Um, so, uh, second year, I think it was, the Church of the Cross, maybe, um, yeah, sometime in the, the second year, our children's ministry was growing. We had lots of children, and we were excited about that. And so we added a classroom to our children's ministry. And so that meant that there were some kids who had been together in the class that now became two classes, and so they were split up. Um, and uh, two of those children that were split up was my um, oldest son, um, Aiden, and his younger brother, uh, Cyrus. All right, so now they were in two different classes. And so that first Sunday of, you know, new children's ministry, uh, after church, um, Aiden comes to Molly and I, and he says, Mom and Dad, Church of the Cross has changed. <laughs> Shaking his head, he was like, it's not the family church it used to be. So, and uh, Molly and I were like, our own child, right, is complaining to us, right, about the church has changed. Now, he experienced a loss, right? That was a, a genuine loss. We were glad he wanted to be um, in Sunday school. He's sitting right there. That's why I'm pointing there. Uh, we were glad he wanted to be Sunday school with his brother. Right? And so, and again, he was eight years old, so, you know, don't, we, we won't judge, right? But it, I think it captures what we often feel. And again, we need to acknowledge the loss, but, but sometimes in acknowledging the loss, maybe we miss out on, wow, God is doing something great. And I wonder, again, I hope it wasn't the case, but I wonder maybe if some of those grieving actually failed to see, look what God's doing right now. Right? The book of Mark is, is, is marked by the word immediately. You heard it twice, right, in the gospel reading, right? Jesus is working right now. Right? That's a message of Mark. That's a message for us at this moment, right? Jesus is working now. And again, as we look back, as we learn from the, the past, and again, you know, we're Anglicans, right? We love looking back, right? We love learning from the past. We love ancient prayers and ancient liturgy, but those empower us for today. And they empower us to respond to what the Lord is doing at this moment, to anticipate what's coming. And so again, we worship the Lord, right? In this moment, Knowing, again, he is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? We don't have to think, oh, if only I could go back and worship God back then, right? The God back then is the God right now, is the God in the future. And so keeping this in mind as we think of this, right, I just want to take a moment to have us just pray silently. And I want to invite you to just ask the question of the Lord, Lord, what are some ways I can just thank you for right now? Again, you are the God of the past. I can remember your past faithfulness. I can look forward to the ways you are going to act in the future. But what's happening right now? Maybe there's an obvious just joy you can celebrate. Maybe there's a trial right now. The Lord's inviting you to thank him even for that, knowing he will redeem it, he will work through it, he will be preparing you um, uh, through this momentary affliction for an eternal weight of glory. So again, just invite you um, to take a few moments to, to pray, and I'll then close this up. We just pray, come Holy Spirit, and give us Give us gratitude and give us eyes, Lord, uh, to, to see 
hearts to receive, right, what things we can celebrate and give thanks to you for in this moment. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.